Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2016 AWP conference in Los Angeles. The recording features Jen Benka, Kenny Cruz, Monica Prince, and Kenyatta Rogers. You will now hear Monica Prince provide introductions. Good afternoon, everyone. How are we doing? Excellent. Okay, it's good to see you all. My name is Monica Prince. I'll be moderating this panel. Welcome to our discussion from MFA JOB, Making a Living, Making a Difference. This panel is part of a collection of Writers in the Schools panels during the conference. If you haven't seen it yet, come and check out the WITS table in the book fair downstairs. It's table 1001. And there you can get free stuff like pens and journals and headphones. Yeah, you know, you need some headphones for that ride back. It's going to be great. At the table, you can learn about all the rest of our events for the remainder of the weekend. We have one panel actually directly after this one titled uh, A Writer's Guide to, to, to Political Advocacy. It's available right here if you need one, or you can come down to the booth afterwards. And at the booth, you can speak to WITS Alliance members, and they can tell you all the great things about writers in the schools, how to get involved with programs in your area, how to start one if there isn't one in your area, and what exactly it is we do as writers in the schools. While you're here in this panel, we'd appreciate it if you would tweet and post about it on social media using our hashtag WITS Alliance, and let everyone know what they missed by not being here. So, for the panel, as writers, People expect us to become the next J.K. Rowling or Stephen King. We pursue scary liberal arts degrees to write sonnets, and then we show them to workshops that destroy us. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but somehow we keep writing and eventually do what writers expect of all of us. So we gain credibility and we go get an MFA. Now that we get the MFA, what do we do with it? There are more options than starving to death starting with becoming a wits writer like me. <laughs> or you can find other avenues, which our lovely panelists are going to talk about today. Each panelist will discuss their unique response to the question, what do I do with an MFA, aside from getting a tenure-track position or writing full-time? I'm going to introduce our panelists, and then they're going to talk to you. And then you're going to ask us questions. And for each question, for the purpose of our podcast, because it's being recorded, I'm going to repeat the question so that you can all hear it. So first up, we have Kenyatta Rogers, to my immediate right. Kenyatta Rogers was a 2012-2013 visiting poet in English at Columbia College, Chicago, where he also earned his MFA in creative writing and poetry. He is a Cave Canem Fellow and was twice nominated for both Pushcart and Best of the Net Prizes. His work has been previously published or is forthcoming from Jubilat, Vinyl, Rhino Poetry, The Volta, and many others. He is an associate editor with Rhino Poetry and currently serves on the creative writing faculty at the Chicago High School for the Arts. Kenyatta Rogers. Hello, can you hear me? Great. So I'm just going to like talk about my trajectory and then talk about how I got there and how I feel about it. Let me make a really bad shameless plug. I'm not really shameless about it. But I work at an arts high school, and since we're here talking about jobs, the high school I work at is hiring for six positions. I have flyers, and you can talk to me afterwards. So initially when I went for my MFA, I started thinking about it in 2003, right? So it's like 13 years ago. And I was a broadcasting major, and I was writing poems on the side, and I switched majors. And the main reason I switched majors was because one of the department heads in the Department of English was like, you're always in these classes. I have no idea who you are. You should be over here. And I was like, that's great, but I don't want to teach high school. Right, you see where this is going, because I actually teach high school. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to teach high school. And they're like, well, you can go for an MFA, and you can teach at the college level. And I'm like, well, that's great, right? So this is 2003, right? So things have changed a lot since then. So I graduated college. I applied for the MFA. And I started my MFA in 2007, right? And by then, things were starting to change quite a bit, drastically. And I came out in 2009. So when I came out of school, I had zero jobs, none, zero, and not a lot of money. And so 
I said yes to just about anything that it looked like it was teaching or involved writing in some type of way. And so even though I didn't have like a lot of experience in many ways, I had like a lot of like these are things that I would do, you know, on my cover letter and in my resume and during these job interviews. And in some ways I feel like, you know, my background in English and in my MFA degree like kind of helped me in like I mean, I mean like, humanities degrees are like degrees in BS, right? So like they teach you ways to like talk your ways into stuff, right? <laughs> So I had a lot of that happening, and I initially still wanted to go for the tenure track thing. And I started out teaching adjuncting, still in Chicago, right? So I taught at community colleges, and I had like three different things that I wanted to do. I wanted to get a tenure track job. I wanted to like work with children in school programs or after school programs doing poetry, or I wanted to work in prisons. I never worked in a prison, but I tried, <laughs> you know, but I did do before and after school programming. I mean, so I said yes to anything that remotely looked like a job or someone completely recommended, hey, how about you go over here and do this thing? Did you go to that table at this job fair you went to? I'm like, okay, I'm going to, right? And so I did all those things, and I ended up working for uh, an after-school program. I adjuncted at three different community colleges in Chicago. This is like the year when, like, I had 1099s. Like, I just could not even really keep track of them all in W-2s. It was kind of a trip, right? And, like, TurboTax couldn't understand it, you know, type of thing. So... I had that scenario. And then I also did like tutoring on the side. So I tutored English as well, too. I'm at the college level, but sometime at the high school level. And I did that for a while. And time went on, and I got this job at Columbia kind of by happenstance. Not by happenstance, but like they were looking for a visiting writer. I went to school there, you know. And so I applied, and I, I was surprised I got hired, you know. So I was like, oh, great, I got hired. So I can teach poetry classes now, right? I was trying to work them into the classes I was teaching. It was mostly composition. I taught a class called um, College Success, which the class title is pretty explanatory about what the class was about, right? How to read, how to study, how to show up on time, how to make a schedule, how to write, how to send emails, you know, things like that. So I was kind of worked those things into my classes. So I taught creative writing, and then I kind of felt spoiled, and I was like, you know, now that I'm teaching these creative writing classes, this is, this is, this is really what I want to do, right? I applied to residencies, you know, of any type and kind. I got into Kabe Khan, I'm like, on a, you know, you, you get rejected. But, like, after a while, you get in, right? But on the side, though, I think the most important thing was, like, I kept writing the poems, right? Because I think I found out, like, however I was working things out, I was always going to – I made more money because I wrote rather than necessarily from the stuff I wrote, right? So, like, I did the work. I sent the work out there. The work would get accepted. Sometimes it wouldn't. But I think still being active in it, people were like encouraged, like, okay, this guy's doing, he's, he's at least writing, right? He's at least part of the thing that he said he's going to be doing with his MFA degree. So I, I think, I mean, it sounds kind of weird, but that kind of actually helped, right? So when people would go, what are you doing? Are you published? I'm like, well, I mean, you know, kind of, but like not really, you know, type of thing. I'm doing this thing. But I still think that showed I was engaged in it. So I had a job at Columbia, and it was like a one-year thing. That year ended. And so then I worked at a nonprofit, a literary nonprofit. And that was probably the worst job I've ever had in my life. I mean, honestly, it was like I had to drive very far. I had to drive a lot. I had to sit down and look at a computer screen. I had to deal with people's emotions in ways I didn't want to. <clears throat> um, and so then this high school thing came up, right? And I was working at this job, and I had some close friends of mine that knew I was completely miserable. And they were like, Kenyatta, you should apply for this high school. And I was like... You know, when I first went for my MFA degree, I didn't want to teach high school. <laughs> Hence why I went for the MFA degree. And I worked with high school kids before, right? But never, like, as an everyday teacher in that capacity. So I got fired from my job, actually. And I was like, well, now I kind of have to look for a job, you know? <laughs> and so I, I applied for this high school job. And, um, you know, that was also another weird scenario in a case of, like, I applied for the job to teach creative writing, right? So the high school, Chicago High School for the Arts, started a creative writing program. <coughs> so I would just be teaching creative writing classes to like high school kids that want to do creative writing types of things, right? So I was like, okay, at least they're creative writing kids. You know, I get called for an interview. And the thing was, I got called to be a substitute because they already hired somebody for the job. I knew the guy in a really roundabout way. And he ended up not having to be able to take the job because he had a scheduling conflict. He was also doing the adjuncting thing. And I got a phone call right before school started, like, you know, we're on a substitute list. This guy couldn't take the job. I want you to come in for a teaching demonstration on the first day of school. 
So actually, me substituting the first day of school was my teaching demonstration. <laughs> I didn't know that until after, after the class ended. I'm like, let's, have a, let's talk. <laughs> and then, I got, then I, you know, I got the job offer. And I'll have to admit, it's, it's probably one of the better jobs I've ever had. I get to work with high schoolers, freshmen, sophomores, some juniors. Uh, and we don't only have those many because like, the program's really, really new. But it's better at my teaching, I think. Like, it's learning about like, classroom management in ways to like engage people with writing, you know, because like stuff to me makes sense, you know. And I explained to someone else, and I had been teaching for a few years at the college level, but working with young people is completely different because like they only can understand certain types of things. Their language is only so big, right? Their capacity for like taking in information is completely different. And so like I had to like completely rethink what I was doing in the classroom and the ways that I was doing it. And Looking back now, um, some stuff that I did in the past, I'm like, that was really bad classroom stuff to do as a teacher. But I digress some. So I work at the high school, and it's great. And so I did to teach creative writing classes to high school students. I have another job at the high school, because it's a part-time job. But my other job there is uh, I do academic support. So I work in the daytime also with English teachers in their classrooms. So I know all the kids in the high school. I know everybody, right? not just creative writing students. Um, and it's actually really, really good. You get to build these relationships. They tend to trust you in certain ways that adults don't when you're, when you're teaching them, right? Like, they, they look for you for advice in ways that, and all, when I was in grad school, I liked my instructors. But at the same time, I was always like, you know, I'm going to do my own thing, right? High school students are completely different than that, right? They're a little bit more impressionable. Um, but in the end, I think it's still hard to, like, keep writing because I still think that's, like, the foundation of what, like, I want to do or what I am. You know, I'm still a writer. And so some, one way that I keep doing it is like any assignments I gave the kids, I'll do them too. Sometimes stuff I completely like make up on the spot. Sometimes it's things that I've appropriated from other workshops or classes I've been in. And I'll take those things, make them for the high school kids. And sometimes they want to see that type of thing. They're like, hey, how about you do it too? And I'm like, okay, I guess so. <laughs> I guess I'll do it too. But it helps me keep engaged in the practice too, right? And then I have these breaks off, summertime, wintertime. And those are the times where I can really like look back and see like what I'm working on. Also, I have a community of people that I'm always around because, like, sometimes you get in a rut and you're like, ah, I don't want to write. I gotta, I gotta feed my cat. I don't, <laughs> you know, I gotta, I gotta put gas in the car. And it's cold. I live in Chicago, so it's cold. And you're like, I don't want to go outside. You know, that type of thing. So, like, keeping a network of people around you that, even if they're not like explicitly like saying you need to start writing, you feel kind of obligated to, right? Because everyone else around you is like doing things, and you're like, I'm just these these people. I have them. I have people I can call. Like people that have. Really, you have one prizes and things. I can call them, but like, I'm like, I should do something too, right? So like, just having that is beneficial to me as a writer as well. It keeps me engaged in my practice. keeps me sending stuff out there in the world. Um, and it keeps me, um, I don't know, it keeps me like I'm doing something. You know, sometimes not just writing, sometimes reading. You know, sometimes read books, you know. Um, go to the events if, if your city has them. If they don't, sometimes I travel really far to go to a poetry event, you know, just because like, hey, this thing's happening and I, and I need to go because I'm not doing nothing else today. And I'm a writer. So I should be there. You know. So yeah, so I, I think that's like the last of my spiel about like my, my travels. I mean, there's a lot more really weird and interesting things there, and that's where I ended up at. And I think it works out for me well in ways I never would have thought it would have. So if you've never taught high school before, I would recommend, or are like hesitant to doing so, I would recommend you like change your perception of that because it actually is. It actually works out really well, you know, and 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 in surprising ways. And sometimes. They'll say things about their own work or the things that we're reading that are really inquisitive, right? Um, and it makes me rethink like the tenure track thing as well, too, because I know people that have tenure track jobs that are miserable. Like they either the department thing is weird, they had to move to some really really obscure place in the U.S. or in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, Yes, I'm willing to move anywhere, but like I'll be, I'll be totally honest. There's some places in the U.S. I, I could not be comfortable living. In, you know, I mean, being a person of color, you know, if I, there's like, you know, how about you take this job in Alabama, in some city? And I'm like, I don't know if I can do that. You know, <laughs> or North Dakota. I'm like, I don't know if, I don't know if I can be safe there. You know, and so it gives me that freedom to like choose where I, what I want to do, not having like be dedicated to like the tenure track type of thing. I still think in some ways I might would be interested in doing it. I mean, I like the thought, you know, that goes into college-level classrooms. But, I mean, I still think I can get that on enrichment on my own, you know, in some ways. And I think I have enough resources to do those types of things, you know, just by keeping up with the practice. Thanks.
Thank you, Kenyatta. Next, we have Jen Benka. Jen Benka is the Executive Director of the Academy of American Poets. She worked previously as the Managing Director of Poets and Writers and for 826 National. She is the author of Pinko and A Box of Longing with 50 Drawers. Benka holds an MFA from the New School. Please welcome Jen Benka. Hi, everyone. First off, happy National Poetry Month. Um, thank you for your support. I'll tell you a little bit about my path, too, and then I'll get a little bit more nuts and boltsy, if you don't mind. Thank you, Monica, for having us all here. So I graduated a long time ago, in the early 90s. My undergraduate degree is in journalism, and I was always interested in writing and social justice work. When I graduated, I worked for about a month at a newspaper, um, back when there, there were such things. And I had to get up really, really early because I was a newbie. I had to start work at 4 o'clock in the morning and pull faxes. Does anyone remember what those were? <laughs> when they scrolled, anyone? <laughs> the culture of a newsroom wasn't for me. And so I pivoted and explored my other passion, which was social justice work, and I wound up getting a job in a homeless shelter. And I worked there for four years. And after that, moved into another nonprofit organization that was a working women's organization called Nine to Five that inspired the movie, that inspired the song. <laughs> and I worked there for a long time. And while I was working um, at the women's organization, I was very involved in the local literary community. I was doing poetry slam, I was writing, I was hanging out at a wonderful literary center, and eventually started volunteering there and got on the board there. So all nonprofit, all day, every day, and eventually there was a job. I was living in Milwaukee, where I'm from, and a job at Poets and Writers opened up in New York City, and I applied, and by some miracle, uh, got the job and moved to New York and worked there for eight years and then went back to get my MFA, which was something that I always had aspired to do. And as an older person with a full-time job, went to night school at the new school and earned my MFA. And as an older person with a job in the literary sector, I had some meetups at my apartment in New York for some of the student, my fellow students in the program, to talk about basically what we're talking about today. Where, where are you all going to go? What are you all going to do? And I posed the question, and one of my classmates said, well, I'm going to write poems. And I said, right. And how are you, you know, going to pay your rent? And she said, well, I'm hopefully going to get my books published. <laughs> And how many poets are in the room? Okay. So our story is a little different than maybe the fiction writers and the creative nonfiction writers. But when she said, well, you know, I'm going to get my, my books published. I'm going to, you know, royalties and advances. And, and, you know, I said, I'm so sorry <laughs> to tell you this. But poets can't really make a living getting books published. It doesn't really work that way, except for maybe five poets <laughs> in the United States of America who earn a living by selling their books. Literally five. Five. And, and I said, I just, you know, again, I hate to break it to you, I just, but I want you to be prepared and, you know, I'm... There are no royalties. Um, well, that's not true. I, I got royalties for one of my books, and it was negative $2.50. I actually owed the publisher <laughs> money. And she just looked at me, and she said, Jen, you're a dream crusher. <laughs> so that's what I'm, I'm here for today. <laughs> 
I'm here to crush your dreams. No, no actually, I, well, yes, I'm here to crush your dreams, but I also really, really want to try to help you. How many of you are graduating in May and are going to be looking for a job? Yeah. All right. Okay. And others maybe are just trying to figure out what else might be available to you as someone with an MFA. Um, well, it was you know interesting. After I got my job at the academy, I started getting a lot of emails from people who were asking me if I was hiring, and I have a really small team, and unfortunately I'm not, wasn't able to create new positions and take new people on. And I also started getting a lot of emails from people saying, hey, Jen, we're looking for someone. Do you know someone? Send along a name if you have resumes. And it was just a sort of informal information trade that was happening. And what I decided to do is try to formalize it a little bit. And for the poets in the room, please know that at poets.org, which is the website that our organization runs, every Wednesday we post jobs for poets. And we also tweet them out every Wednesday. If you follow us on Twitter, at poets.org, org, every Wednesday you'll see in your feed a couple great jobs um, that are for poets. And those jobs include positions at universities. We do not tweet adjunct positions. We tweet really only full-time positions and nonprofit jobs. So check that out. While I've crushed your dreams and told you that you might not be able to make a living, at least right away, with your writing, there is some good news, and that's that your skills are totally in demand in the for-profit and nonprofit sector, and that there are a wide variety of jobs that you should be thinking about that your skills relate to. On the corporate side, which is not my area of expertise, so forgive me, but you might check out social media positions, communication positions, copywriting jobs at tech startups and advertising agencies. These companies, I know, are regularly looking for excellent writers, savvy writers, creative writers. Um, you can check out listings at Media Bistro. They have a great jobs list. You may have been to the job site Indeed. That's also useful not always comprehensive. If you're looking for a job in the corporate world, um, really recommend that you go to companies' websites and look at the postings on their websites. Oftentimes, they don't post them externally. They just post them on their, their site. And you should be following the companies that you want to work at on social media because they often tweet out jobs um, that they have open. So I've worked in the nonprofit sector now for 30 years, more in my wheelhouse, and there are a couple jobs that I would recommend that you, you also think about that you're probably qualified for. Grant writing positions. There aren't really classes, uh, you, college classes you can take to qualify you to be a grant writer. It's really a skill that you learn on the job, and the way you get into it is by saying, look, I'm a strong writer, let me see some of your other grant proposals. We're good. So look into grant writing. Again, communication specialist, with, which might mean social media positions, but also might mean um, writing organizations' newsletters. Look into development jobs. Development meaning fundraising. We're always looking for strong writers who can write fundraising appeals, letters to donors, thank you letters, um, annual reports. And then program managers, individuals who can help publicize readings, write press releases, all of these things you're absolutely qualified to do. Here are a couple jobs that are open right now in the nonprofit sector and in the literary arts. The California Arts Council is looking for an associate arts grant administrator, someone who has knowledge of the California Arts Council and knows something about nonprofit administration and the cultural history and art activity in California. Gray Wolf, they're here at the book fair, is looking for an editorial assistant. Heyday Books in Berkeley, nonprofit publisher, 
is looking for a director of development, again, to write grant proposals, write letters to donors, work with the executive director and the publisher to prepare for meetings with donors. A lot of times that's doing research and writing up biographies of donors that we might be meeting with to ask for contributions. 826 NYC is opening a writer's room and they are looking for a full-time coordinator to be responsible for providing the educators and students that participate with ongoing support. Black Mountain Institute, an international literary center in uh, Las Vegas, is looking for a full-time deputy director. Portland Parks and Recreation is looking for a full-time art, culture, and special events manager to bring together and oversee the programs and facilities that have a focus on arts, culture, and the activation of public spaces. Like, would you ever think about working for the Parks Department? (laughs) But you could. Um, Another good bit of news is that your MFA is absolutely going to make you more competitive for whatever job you're applying for. Um, As I described, I worked in the nonprofit sector for a long time. I worked as the managing director of Poets and Writers. I went back to school. I got my graduate degree. I knew that I needed that graduate degree and that experience in order to become an executive director, which was my ultimate goal. I was never interested in teaching, largely because I didn't want to move to a city or location that I didn't have a passion for or was interested in. Um, so I, I wouldn't get, I, there's no way I would be in the job that I have today unless I had my MFA. All right, just a few nuts and bolts tips for the job seekers, and then uh, I'm out of here. For your resume, if you're not applying for a teaching position, do not send a Vita. Um, send a resume. Your resume should be one page. Don't include photographs, illustrations, and images. I'm not kidding. I, if there is a cat on that resume, <laughs> it is not happening. It's also not happening if you have an MFA in creative writing and there is a typo anywhere. Don't list your hobbies. I know that sometimes people recommend at the very bottom, it makes you more personal and gives people a sense of who you are exactly. (laughs) We don't want to know what you collect. I kid you not. You just don't know what's going to trigger an employer in the wrong way. You might be really excellent at karaoke. And karaoke every week, right? I hate karaoke. I don't want to work with you. You are going to be singing. You're going to be humming. Um, you, you don't know where those buttons are. It's, it's serious. You have literally maybe five seconds to make an impression. You know, an employer is going to open your email. That letter has to be short, punchy, perfect. Your resume can't have anything that's going to throw a flag. You should include any relevant volunteer experience. Wherever you can fill out your set of experience, even if it's not a paid job, that's fine. You know, if you say, look, I just graduated. The last time I had a job was at Starbucks. Um, But for this whole year, I've been volunteering with writers in the schools. Great. You got an interview. I want to hear from you. For your cover letter, please write a customized letter for every job you apply for. Don't spray the same cover letter to every single job. It needs to be personalized. Don't tell stories. A cover letter is not a piece of short fiction. It's not your memoir. I've gotten a lot of cover letters from folks, and it's, you know, the life story, and it's not professional, really, and it's not what I'm looking for. I want to know that you're going to be a good fit and someone who's hardworking and focused, and yes, I want to know that you're sparkly, which is the number one thing that I look for when I'm personally hiring. Um, If I can see that someone has a good heart 
and is willing to learn, that's great. But the materials have to get you in the door. Keep your letter short to a few paragraphs and make a connection to the organization's mission or focused. And again, don't, don't try to be funny, except sometimes the tech startups like that. And if they invite that and say, tell us a funny story, tell us one goofy thing or wacky thing, then go for it. Do it. They want to see your creativity, but in general, keep it straight. All right, that's it. Good luck. Happy to talk more. Thank you, Jen. Which does pay you, just so you know. (laughs) Finally, we have Kenny Cruz. Kenny Cruz holds an MFA and a Master's in Women's Studies from the University of Alabama and is currently studying in the Education, Culture, and Society program at the University of Utah for his PhD. In Alabama, he taught with the Alabama Prison Arts and Education Project and co-founded Tuscaloosa Writers in the Schools. He's currently working to start similar programs in Salt Lake City. He has been a Lambda Emerging LGBTQ Voices Fellow in Fiction and is currently fighting not to have a nine-to-five job. Welcome, Kenny Cruz. Thank you, Monica, for organizing this. So I just wanted to start with a quote from Paulo Freire, the Brazilian educator. He writes, education either functions as an instrument which is used to facilitate integration of the younger generation into the logic of the present system and bring about conformity, or it becomes the practice of freedom, the means by which men and women deal critically and creatively with reality and discover how to participate in the transformation of their world. So I have never made a decision in my education based on what I thought would get me a job because I've never felt defined by the job that I have. So I started working in restaurants when I was 14 years old. I majored in women's studies in college. I took a few years off, thought I might get a PhD in women's studies at some point, and then decided to do an MFA in creative writing, um, which was kind of a hard decision for me to make because I had always done a lot of activism, been involved with Planned Parenthood and nonprofits and political campaigns, and I felt really selfish going to school to just spend time writing. And so it took me a long time to make that decision. And I got there and loved it in some ways in Alabama. And in some ways I felt like Tuscaloosa is a weird place as are many of the places that MFA programs are in. And that, I mean, especially the fully funded ones. Like a lot of the fully funded ones are in the South and like places like Tuscaloosa or Baton Rouge. And so I had never been to the South before I got to Tuscaloosa, and I felt really isolated from community, which is something I hadn't experienced before. And so my first year in MFA school, I felt like really trapped in this MFA bubble. And then I went to AWP, I don't remember which one, it was either in Chicago or Boston, and I um, went to an AWP panel on starting a nonprofit, an arts nonprofit, and I was like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that as like right when I get home. So <laughs> I got some friends together. And Tuscaloosa is like one of the most segregated school districts in the country. Very, very wealthy in some parts. The University of Alabama is incredibly wealthy. Very, very low income in much of the city schools. It's really sad that there's this huge disparity. And um, like Central High School, which was featured in the Atlantic. They did a big article about resegregation in the South, and they focused on the valedictorian at Central High School who wasn't going to go to college. And um, they talked about how this school is like three blocks away from the university, and most of the students there have never been to the university. So I really wanted to like bridge that gap, and also I know I'm from Utah, which is similar to Alabama in that there's no funding for education from the state, So there are virtually no arts programs in public schools in either of those states. And so I started meeting with administrators and teachers in the district, and everyone was really, really supportive. And so we started a WITS program, which was really exciting, and got to, like, be involved in the community in a way that the MFA program didn't offer us before that. So that was a great experience, and I... um, also started teaching with the Alabama Prison Arts and Education Project, which was an amazing experience. It's my favorite thing I've ever done. I did it for a year and a half. Um, 
was really, really difficult and also really, really rewarding. And I learned a lot. I learned a lot about writing and reading and uh, people. The students I worked with are like incredibly generous with feedback with each other, with me, um, and their writing and the time they commit to writing and reading. I kind of fell in love with education working in the prisons. But I also recognized the whole time I was there how problematic that work is in many ways, with privilege, with race, with class. The whole prison system in Alabama, it's the most overpopulated prison system in the country. They're at 200% capacity. And so I felt that we might be contributing to the problem by filling this gap that the state should be offering by working for a nonprofit and offering education, when really the state should be paying for education in prisons. And so I struggled with that a lot, and, but then at the end of the day, it's like, well, if we're not doing this work, no one's doing this work. And so for the students, it doesn't really matter. Like, the politics behind it don't matter. So I had to, like, negotiate that a lot. So when I finished grad school, I moved back to Utah, and I started the job I have now, which is serving and bartending in a brewery. And that's the job I had before grad school, too. And I actually love that work because... I'm in a PhD program, I write, so I spend a lot of time by myself writing and reading or like with a small group of friends writing and reading. So working in the service industry, it's really fast-paced, very social, really flexible. I can pick up extra shifts, drop shifts. Um, I'm sure a lot of you have worked in the service industry as well. I also drive for Lyft, so that's been interesting too. And I kind of think like this is where like, when you're getting degrees like women's studies and creative writing, I don't think you can go into it with the poetry outlook of, like, I'm going to get advances and everything will be fine. But I struggled a lot working in the restaurant again. Like, oh, I'm in exactly the same place I was before I went to grad school. People constantly asking me, like, why are you doing this? People talk down to you a lot. People think that because you work in the service industry, you're stupid. Whereas, like, a ton of the people I work with have graduate degrees or, like, dancers or artists or musicians. Like, it's so fun working there. And at first I was thinking, okay, I'm back here, but I'll get to my career. This is just, like, a place where I'm resting for a minute. And I think that's disingenuous to think that way. It's all part of my life, and I can't like compartmentalize it by like what looks good on a resume or a CV and what doesn't. So yeah, now I'm in this education program, this PhD that's all about social justice, and I really came to that through my MFA program. I also, in the summers, I work for an organization. We take high school kids on community service trips around the world, so... I worked on the Blackfeet Nation in Montana and in Ecuador and Cambodia, and this summer I'm going back to Burma again. So I think I've always just kind of done the things that I'm excited about and cobbled together the finances very badly, especially with, like, I have, like, crippling student loan and, like, health insurance and all that stuff. But it's okay because I'm writing and I'm doing the things that I really care about, and I think if I were to get jobs that people are constantly trying to get me to do that I wouldn't feel like I was doing what mattered to me. And I think that's more important than anything else. So that's all I have. Thank you. Thank you, Kenny. We're going to take questions. I'm going to stand here so I can restate your questions so that you can hear everyone. So does anyone have any questions? You, hello. She asked what kind of job experience slash volunteer work to look for while you're still in your MFA program. It depends on where you are and where you want to end up, but some things that you could consider, volunteering at a local library. If you um, live in a city where there's a, a publisher, a nonprofit publisher, you could volunteer to help out with them. Trust me, every single literary arts nonprofit organization around needs help. So libraries, literary arts organizations, publishers would probably be my, my, top, my top three. Yeah. I was wondering if you found that working, working jobs like in the service industry, retail, things like that, if working jobs 
thought that you can leave at work and coming home and being able to, basically that situation helped you write more than you would if you were involved in a job that you couldn't leave at work. Definitely. For me, it's when I left grad school and got back and started working in the brewery, it was like such a relief that I had control over my time again, like when I was not at work. I'm also a server right now, and it's pretty much like the only way that I get any writing done. I, wor- I write at work. Like, that's what I do. When we're slow, I'm writing poems. <laughs> so, totally works. Okay. Yes. Online work and freelance. I um, I work on Rhino Poetry, and most of the work that we do there is online. So I mean, we do it in our own free time, and again, it's something that I that we you know we don't we don't get paid for, right? So it's like I'm doing it in my own time. But <laughs> repeat the second part of the question. I, How do we get those jobs? Oh, I don't know if I have a response to that part. <laughs> I think part of it for me was like I sent the journal poems, and they really liked them, and they were like, "Would you be interested in being an editor?" Is like how that worked for me. So like for me, it was like just doing the work of sending my work out there in the world, and the response came backwards. You know, it was like, would you be interested in like working on this thing with us? You know, as well too. So I mean, that could be one thing too, just being active in your own practice. People might come find you. I also know that a lot of the journals like that are unsubmittable. When you go to their submission pages, they also have job like people who want like, will you read for us? Will you like write book reviews for us and so on and so forth? Those are also like listed on some of their submission pages. Yes. And, and back to the, the volunteer question, someone's walking around the conference, or at least one person is, with a tote bag that says, pay your interns. Yeah. For real. Pay your interns. We pay our interns. Um, so one, I, I would say look for paid internship positions. There aren't necessarily a lot of them. I know that not all of us have the, the luxury of time when we're trying to pay our rent to be able to volunteer. But even if you do it a few times, it it helps. And some online journals that are publishing poetry, for example, are labors of love. And if you get reach out to some of those journals and say, hey, I'm happy to help you however I can, that's a great experience to add to your resume. I think it's always a great idea to reach out to organizations that you're interested in. I, on a regular basis, get some queries, and when students say, look, I have a week off, I'd love to come by and help, great. It's a way to get in the door. Yes, Okay, so there's two questions. The first question is, what other service industry jobs allow you to do that? allow you to like write in your free time that gives you the flexibility and the other question is what happens to your imagination when you are writing not your own writing like copy editing and uh, freelance posts and such such okay there you go go for it y'all I have a friend of mine who he has an MFA in poetry and he was working writing video game stories and yeah, it was really it was a really odd job I thought like he was writing stories for like educational games and sometimes just video games in general and uh, for him, he, like, really liked it because, like, it made him think about different ideas that he would never thought of beforehand. So, like, he was, like, when well, writing a story about, like, I don't know, something with, like, mythology in it. And he was, like, I never thought about it. And he had to research stuff for it. And he started writing poems based off the stuff that he was finding out. He also used to write, like, those, um, you ever click on something, like, on a website and you get, like, a pop-up that shows up to, like, something completely irrelevant? Mm-hmm. You know, like cat litter or whatever? Mm-hmm. He used to write those things as well, too. <laughs> And so he had all this really weird knowledge about stuff because he had to research this information to, like, write this, like, really weird script about it. And so, like, he would write poems based off of that stuff. So it gave him, like, more ammo, I guess. Like, he would, like, he was building his arsenal of things that he, would, that he knew about and incorporating it to his actual work. So I, I think in some ways it, it could be beneficial. It could be good. I mean, I think the U.S. 
economy is primarily service sector now. So restaurants, hotels, travel stuff, stores. I'm trying to think of anything else. I mean, I, I'm like Monica. I write and read all the time at work when we're like when I have a break. And I think a nice thing about a restaurant is that my managers are just like, "You're so strange. What are you doing?" They don't. And then they never told me to stop. So. <laughs> With the exception of like holidays, I'm always writing and reading on my job. Because when they hired me, they they hired me with the knowledge that I was a writer. Like, that was in my interview. I explained, I was like, hey, I'm probably going to go leave you and go get my PhD at some point. So, like, you have to be cool with me always reading in the bus station when, when there's nothing happening. And because it's a small business, they were like, oh, well, that's really nice. Like, that's fine. So they were down for it. It's not, not all corporations operate that way. They'd rather me be reading a book than being on my phone so it works out. But I think it depends on who you're working for. Because uh, some corporations are not down. They want you to be walking the floor all the time and all that jazz. But I think it depends on the position you're in. I also uh, used to work at a supermarket for a very, very long time. It yeah. was the same thing. Like, you know, if you're working in the daytime, you're just hanging out, you know. <laughs> and so, like, you know, I, w- I, would get to, I would write stuff, and, like, no one really seemed really odd by it. But, like, I would get the time to, work, like, work on my work at work, you know, in that ways. I also have a lot of friends who have done, like, uh, graveyard shifts, you know, like taxi services or hospitals or nonprofits or any variety of things where they got to write and read a ton at night. Yes. I really think the best way to go about that is to market yourself to organizations that you want to help. I have over the past several years had people, development people reach out to me, grant writers reach out to me, make a case for helping out and I've oftentimes hired them. So I think the best thing to do is just really start marketing yourself. The two questions were, how do you leverage your MFA when you're applying for a position and how do you start a nonprofit? I think, did we have a panel about that last year? We had one last year. We'll have no one next year. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> on how to leverage it, one, you should just know that by having a graduate degree on your resume, by having made that additional investment in your education, it will stand out to an employer. So just simply by having it on your resume, you're helping yourself. If you're, for example, applying for a copywriting job at an ad agency, in your cover letter, you want to call out the fact that you have a graduate degree in creative writing and that has strengthened your capacity to generate bubbly, sparkly, popping copy. You know, you want to call it out, flag it right up front, up top in that cover letter. So for every job that you're applying to, find a way to add a sentence in the cover letter that makes the fact that you honed your writing skills that surfaces that in the letter. As far as starting a nonprofit, I, I had some friends who I knew would be interested in working with me and a professor. And so I met with each of them right when I got back from AWP and they were all on board. And then we started calling and emailing every Writers in the Schools program around the country. Like I spoke with Robin. Just we had tons of phone conversations, email conversations, getting advice. And um, most of the advice was, like, they told us what they had done or, like, how their program was started, but they said, really, there's no, like, standardized way to start one of these programs. It depends on the particulars of where you're living. So we just started meeting with tons of administrators at the university and the school districts, teachers, local business owners, and it took a lot of, like, energy at first, but it was, like, really, really fun. Also, if you do want to go talk to the WITS members at the our booth at 1001, they can actually tell you like how to get more information about starting a nonprofit or specifically a WITS organization in your area. Okay. <laughs> My question is for Kenyatta. I was wondering what additional vocational requirements you need to go through for teaching at a high school level. Um, so at the high school that I teach at, none. I used to do my MFA. <laughs> and actually, there's some instructors that teach it that just have their undergraduate degree. But my MFA definitely did help me with that. So it's a weird structure. Even though I work at a public school, and it's a public arts high school, 
if you're teaching arts classes, you do not have to have a teaching certification at this institution. If I was going to teach an academic class there, like an academic English or math class or something, I would have to have my, my, um, my certification. So it all, it all really varies. Um, there are like charter schools, you know, and in some of them you don't need to have your teaching certification either. So I would say check the, wherever you're looking to apply it, check their, their, like, their website for like what you need to work at that particular place because it, it all varies per school and per city as well too. So I'm, I'm not sure where you're based out of, but um, I know in Chicago, like, if you're working for CPS, you may or may not need your teaching certification. So, yeah, but for where I'm at, I, I didn't need it for my job, no. Yes. Okay, I just have a question about um, online presence and the way we present ourselves. I'm interested in creating a website of some kind before I graduate. I'm wondering what I should be highlighting on that. Like, how do I marry my literary self with my professional self? Like, what's the best way of presenting yourself so that you're, a bit, you're really marketing yourself for a variety of different I'm very interested in social justice work as well, but I'm also very interested in literary arts, I'm interested in teaching. Are there certain things that you think are important to include on a personal website? Thanks for bringing up online presence and social media, and I'll answer your question in a second. But the first thing I would say is when you're applying for jobs, know that your employer is going to check you out on social media. You know, it's very possible and completely common that folks will see if you're on Twitter and the kinds of things that you're tweeting. That didn't happen back in the day, but it does now, so just know that. If you are building a website to help kind of promote the different things that you're interested in, I think that's a useful tool, for sure. Another thing that's more and more common is sort of an online resume. A lot of folks are using Squarespace to kind of create a visualized, sometimes even using infographics, other images describing their different interests. And I would recommend just doing all three. You know, I don't think you have to just have a writer website and an activist website and a, you know, another website for your other interests. I think it's fine to let people see your whole self, but make sure that what you're highlighting in each of those areas is going to somehow help tell a whole story, you know? I actually have a writer's website, and I have all three of those things on there. I have my work with writers in the schools, I have my personal performance work, and I also have, like, my graduate work in there. So I think that, I think it works. So. Yeah. <laughs> yes? Do you guys have any tips for interview tips? Interview tips? Uh, I've I've always just been I know that's like something you hear all the time just be yourself but I've always I've always done that I have a lot of anxiety as Monica knows you know from like planning this plan. <laughs> it's been a long two months y'all yeah. <laughs> so uh, you know I get really anxious and nervous a lot but like I think when it comes down to it I I don't try to like put like on a fake facade of like who who I am at all you know in any way whatsoever uh, I try not to swear. <laughs> and I do look presentable when I show up. <laughs> I always actually like bring like extra copies of stuff too. So I'll bring some poems, I'll bring my CV, I'll bring my cover letter again. I have business cards, I bring those with me when I go there. So anything that I've sent them already, I'll bring it again. And I've also like anything that I've worked on. So like I worked at a job once where we made like little books like for the high school students. So I have extra copies of those that I bring with me. So I just bring like extra things that I think I might want to show them or they might ask for or that I can just leave. Um, anyways, with them. I think that's excellent advice. Definitely, that helps. Also, simple things. Arrive early. Dress up, right? Look presentable. In fact, dress more formally than you would. You know, at, at uh, the Academy of American Poets, folks, except for me, um, wear jeans and T-shirts. But every single person that I hired... You know, we're wearing skirts and ties and jackets. That's not what you're going to have to wear when you work there. But you want the potential employer to know that you are making a real effort and that you respect their time and you respect what they do. And that makes a difference. Again, as soon as that person opens the office door, when you knock on it, you're either getting that job or not. So you don't want to 
look like a mess, right? Because you have that first impression. Do your research. Make sure you know everything you can about the company or organization. I always ask candidates, you know, what do you know about the academy? You know, what programs are you interested in? And it's very clear when someone has no idea what we do. And they might have had a great cover letter and a great resume, and then suddenly it's revealed that they don't, you know, didn't really care to investigate further. So do your research and have questions prepared. At the end of most interviews, a prospective employer will say, what, what can I tell you? What questions do you have for me? Please don't say, uh, I don't know. You should have two or three questions at the ready. I think uh, one other thing is um, I've never rushed to answer the question. Like sometimes if I have a question, I've been stumped. You know, they're like, what do you think about blah? And I'm like, you know. But, uh, but like, I've always, I've never like tried to just have word vomit on the ready, you know, for them. So I was like, sometimes if they ask me that, I'm confused. I'm like, could you repeat that? Or I'll also like, like, give me a second and I'll let, let me think about what I might. I've actually been very open about that. Well, let me think. I never thought about it. Let me think about it for a second. I've just taken my time with it. And for, I don't know. I bet to me that's been helpful. <laughs> I guess yeah. I think that's great. Yeah. I mean, you, you want to ultimately just have a conversation, you know, and, and you want people to get a sense of who you are and the kind of contribution that you'll make. And employers really just want, they want to just get a vibe from you. That said, knowing that you've kind of taken care of all of these other things on the checklist. But I think having just an open, friendly conversation is the best kind of interview. Yes. <laughs> I feel like uh, as a poet, as a person, I have a lot of cool things that usually doesn't come out in the interview because I'm an idiot. <laughs> so I work with nine poets um, every day. And so the answer to your question is, have I ever hired an awkward person? Yes. Um, you know, and I myself am awkward and sometimes a spaz. And, you know, we, we work in the arts. We work with poets. There's a certain degree of sensitivity and an expectation or a, a need for some solitude and space. So I think that, you know, the most important thing is just to be yourself. And I'm completely serious when I say that everyone that I've ever hired has come into an interview prepared They've gotten that interview because they've written a really good cover letter and had a really solid resume. And in the interview, it's an open, friendly conversation. And the thing that I'm looking for is just sparkly. And that sparkly can be awkward. It can be awkward sparkles. But, you know, I just I want to know that you're a good person and you're going to try and you're going to work hard. And you might need to eat the same salad in the same corner of the office at the same time, and that's cool. (laughs) We'll we'll, we'll leave you alone. Um, So just, I think, be yourself. People will see that. Let your personality show, even if your personality isn't big and loud. um, You know, let let people have an authentic experience. I think it makes a big difference. I don't Something I've always done, I, this might, I don't know if this answers your question or goes back to yours. I've always sent a follow-up email after I've had an interview. Yes. Yeah, so, like, if, if yes. I've had their contact information, I have the interview, I go home, the next day I'll send an email, you know, to thank them for the interview and, you know, yeah. and so forth. Can please, please. <laughs> I, I'm not even kidding. I have not hired people because they haven't thanked me. And it's not about thanking me, whatever. It, I mean, it's not about me. It's about the process and respecting the process and the etiquette and the formality. And you don't have to write a thank you letter. You don't need to use paper anymore. You will get bonus points, though, if you do. (laughs) And if you send a little thank you card, that's sort of going above and beyond, and that does stand out. But you don't have to do that. But the most important thing is please send an email after the interview thanking the person that you interview with. Um, If you don't, you might not get the job. I mean, it's so competitive. And this you should know, and now I'm wearing my Dream Crusher hat again. (laughs) You should have left while you you had the chance. (laughs) For every job we have open at the Academy of American Poets, I get 300 applications. And of those 300, 100 are crazy, right? 100 are just like, make no sense. 
Like, why are you, you know, that's the people just, I, I think there are people that just apply for, just do this as a hobby. Just to like, it's free. I mean, it's like, it's, so a third are just out the door. Another hundred are sort of interesting, but the experience isn't quite right. And maybe the cover letter wasn't the best, but, mm. and then there's a hundred. And of those a hundred, 50 to 75 are folks who have MFA degrees. And that's where it starts getting razor sharp. And so when I say don't have a typo, it's because you're competing against 50 other people. And if your cover letter, so my last name is B-E-N-K-A, if it's, you know, Dear Jen Benha, I've recycled your cover letter, or I've deleted it. Like in one second, I've been called Mr. Do not call me Mr. <laughs> in most cases. Don't, don't, there may be some cases. <laughs> but... That's how competitive it is. And that's how, seriously, every single thing that we're talking about and sharing with you matters. You know, if you, if you show up late, and I've hired people who've showed up late because they've told an, an honest story and it makes sense, but, you know, if you show up late, if you don't take the time to have your act together, if you didn't do your research, if you don't send a thank you, any of these things can make an employer cut you when, when there are literally 30 other people on paper like like you. So look for those things that are going to make you stand out, those experiences, and don't take yourself out of the process for something stupid, you know? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I think we have time for one or two more questions, if anyone else has a question. They're all hired. The Chicago <laughs> High School for the Arts is hired. He has has flyers. All all subjects. (laughs) Yes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that, that I, because I've cobbled together, I mean, that's why I'm here, you know, I've cobbled together writing, but it's never been full-time. It's been freelance, but it's teaching that, you know. But I really worry about what I look, because I'm older, too, and mm-hmm. I, I've been, I have had my MFA for 15 years, and I really am concerned what it looks like to potential employers that I have not, I've been so fortunate not to So, I had like some weird in between undergraduate and graduate school. I took some time off, you know, and then I, um, you know, during graduate school, I didn't really work. So I had some weird gaps in my resume. So I think those gaps for me were filled in still by doing creative work. So like I would still have like things that I was involved in during those times, even though if they weren't on the work part of it, they were like on the like the you know, the publishing, the volunteering, you know, the editing. Like, I still had things that were happening in those areas, which showed I was still actively doing something that involved me being able to do this job. My recommendation would be to not worry about it so much and just to, you know, in a cover letter, address it very, very upfront and concisely and to say, you know, after 15 years of freelancing, I'm now looking for full-time employment. I mean, it... You don't need to tell a long line. Don't worry about it. Just the most important thing is being confident about your story. I've had gaps between jobs too. And, you know, you just have to understand that everyone has a time in their life like that. And there are a lot of people who've taken time out of full-time work that are coming back into it for a number of reasons. And I think you don't have to make a big deal about it. I'm going to take one last question if anyone has one last question. If you don't have seven years of experience, I would recommend not applying for those jobs. Jobs that say they want three years of experience, 
everyone says they want three years of experience. So I, I would encourage you to not rule out those jobs. Again, you don't want to apply for jobs that are asking for very experienced people if you truly don't have that experience. But if it's in that zero to three-year window, if you have an MFA, I think you have a case to make for sure. But I wouldn't make a big deal of it. I wouldn't say, well, hey, I don't have three years. Don't call it out. Make a case. You know, apply for the job. Talk about all the skills that you have that relate to that. You're active on Twitter. You're active on Tumblr, Instagram. You've written for a literary journal. You blah, blah, blah. And let the employer rule you out in that case. For me, I've applied for things, and I'm like, the, the worst thing that's going to happen is they're not going to call me. Right. So it's like, you know, why not? You know, and if I get a call, I worry about it then. Thank you all so much for coming today. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.